real news. Welcome, everyone, to the Tori Sess Show. I'm your host, Tori. Today is January 21st, 2020. And our president is in Switzerland, and he gave a fabulous speech. A really fabulous speech that I think uh, I'm going to start with today for all of you to listen, for those of you that weren't up like I was, uh, uh, waiting to hear it live. And his speech was so incredible. He schooled globalists like nobody's business in the most Trump way he could. Uh, tooting his successes and offering them an olive branch to do the same in order to prosper as a whole. There's a lot of uh, stuff that we're going to talk about. This is what we're going to start with today. Uh, It is fair that I should mention that um, uh, there was a report that came out, believe it or not, uh, that... um, we have some, what is it, uh, how, how do you want to call it, uh, some prejudice? You, you know, there's a lot of things that they tell us are racist. And, you know, minorities and et cetera, et cetera. There's, uh, there's something called financial discrimination, something that we've never, I, I think I've mentioned but never talked about, kind of told you that, you know, if you have bad credit, no matter how good your driving record is, your insurance rate's going to be super high, even if you've never had an accident. And, but this one is even more different. Axios had published an article a couple days ago, how minorities and young adults pay much higher banking fees. And specifically, black checking account holders reported paying an average of $12 a month in just fees. So there's racism in banking. And you have to think the average person in the U.S. with a checking account pays about $8 a month in fees like, you know, routine service charges, like ATM fees, overdrafts, whatever. But black and Hispanic customers are spending at least twice as much. And millennials between the ages of 24 and 39, gosh, for one year, I'm not considered a millennial. I think I'm a millennial. But anyway, that's what millennials are, ages 24 to 39. Um, so I guess I'm on the cusp millennial Gen X. How weird. Uh, so typical millennials with a checking account pay at an, at an average of $13 a month and Gen X pay $9 a month and $3 for baby boomers, <laughs> which are 56 to 74. What my daughter says, okay, boomer, totally not a boomer. I'm actually a millennial, which is, well, I'm going to say I'm a millennial because I kind of am off by one year according to Axios. Uh, so um, minority owned banks are also disappearing. And then you have to think, who runs the banking systems? I mean, think. When you actually do the homework, you can see that, uh, what is it, those uh, union-owned banks, like Amalgamated Bank, that are so all about the Democrats that they only fund the Democrats. And you have a choice that when you get deposited, you know, your wages in there, you can, you know, quickly have money withdrawn and sent over to campaigns like Hillary for America or Pelosi and her pens. Um, so basically, these banks, believe it or not, 
double than that. Minorities that have checking accounts with these Democrat exclusive banks pay more fees than anyone else. And they have the crappiest interest rates for any loans and um, uh, credit cards for that uh, demographic. And you might say, well, you know, maybe they're not good at finances, the younger people, minorities, stop. Everyone should have a fair chance, right? Uh, The bottom line is, is that these liberal banks are the ones that are charging them a lot of money. And it's mostly minorities. I just wanted to point that out. And that article was written by Axios on uh, January 16th. If you want to delve a little bit deeper into how minority-owned banks are um, headed for extinction, you can. So we're going to start off today with Davos. And since we're in Switzerland, we're going to talk about royalty for a bit. Uh, Cause I mentioned something about the Royals. Not a lot of took, not a lot of, uh, you know, uh, expansion on that. Uh, but I did tell you who spoke with them and what the plan is. And you know, it looks like the Royals are running for cover and they're trying to revamp their game. In the meantime, I'm actually really, really sick. Um, I think I caught something coming into warmer weather. Uh, you would think at negative 30 degree weather I'd be sick, but no, it's a little bit warmer here. And I am actually, you know, stuffy nose, whatever. So I've just hit the fresh squeezed orange juice and the mandarin. So if you hear maybe a silent, it's probably me sneezing again. Uh, we're also going to talk about James O'Keefe's new release about uh, communist Bernie and his staffers and how they feel about things. And um, then I want to talk about the NSA. Huh. Because this isn't old news. Well, this isn't new news. It's old news, new news. How's that? So let's start with our amazing speech by a president, talk a little bit about that, go into the royals, and then we're going to talk about Parnas, Giuliani, uh, the NSA, James O'Keefe. Uh, that's it. We've got a lot to cover today. So let me start with our president's speech, which was amazing. Well, thank you very much, Klaus, and very special congratulations on your 50th year hosting the annual meeting of the World Economic Forum, a truly amazing achievement. It's an honor to address the distinguished members of this organization for the second time. When I spoke at this forum two years ago, I told you that we had launched the great American comeback. Today, I'm proud to... I declare that the United States is in the midst of an economic boom, the likes of which the world has never seen before. We've regained our stride, rediscovered our spirit, and reawakened the powerful machinery of American enterprise. America is thriving. America is flourishing. And yes, America is winning again like never before. Just last week alone, the United States concluded two extraordinary trade deals, the agreement with China and the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement, the two biggest trade deals ever made. They just happened to get done in the same week. These agreements represent a new model of trade for the 21st century, agreements that are fair, reciprocal, and that prioritize the needs of workers and families. 
America's economic turnaround has been nothing short of spectacular when I took office three years ago. America's economy was in a rather dismal state. Under the previous administration, nearly 200,000 manufacturing jobs had vanished. Wages were flat or falling. Almost 5 million more Americans had left the labor force than had gotten jobs, and more than 10 million people had been added to the food stamp rolls. The experts predicted a decade of very, very slow growth, or maybe even negative growth, high unemployment and a dwindling workforce, and very much a shrinking middle class. Millions of hardworking, ordinary citizens felt neglected, betrayed, forgotten. They were rapidly losing faith in the system. Before my presidency began, the outlook for many nations was bleak. Top economists warned of a protracted worldwide recession. The World Bank lowered its projections for global growth to a number that nobody wanted to even think about. Pessimism had taken root deep in the minds of leading thinkers, business leaders, and policymakers. Yet despite all of the cynics, I had never been more confident in America's future. I knew we were on the verge of a profound economic resurgence if we did things right. One that would generate a historic wave of investment, wage growth, and job creation. I knew that if we unleashed the potential of our people, if we cut taxes, slashed regulations, and we did that at a level that's never been done before in the history of our country in a short period of time, fixed broken trade deals and fully tapped American energy, that prosperity would come thundering back at a record speed. And that is exactly what we did, and that is exactly what happened. Since my election, America has gained over 7 million jobs, a number unthinkable. I wouldn't say it, I wouldn't talk about it, but that was a number that I had in mind. The projection was 2 million, we did 7. More than three times the government's own projections. The unemployment rate is now less than 3.5 percent, and at 3.5 percent, that's a number that is the lowest in more than 50 years. The average unemployment rate from my administration is the lowest for any U.S. president in recorded history. We started off with reasonably high rate. For the first time in decades, we are no longer simply concentrating wealth in the hands of a few. We're concentrating and creating the most inclusive economy ever to exist. We are lifting up Americans of every race, color, religion, and creed. Unemployment rates among African Americans, Hispanic Americans, and Asian Americans have all reached record lows. African American youth unemployment has reached the lowest it's ever been in the history of our country. African American poverty has plummeted to the lowest rate ever recorded. The unemployment rate for women reached the lowest level since 1953, and women now comprise a majority of the American workforce. That's for the first time. The unemployment rate for veterans has dropped to a record low. 
the unemployment rate for disabled Americans has reached an all-time record low. Workers without a high school diploma have achieved the lowest unemployment rate recorded in U.S. history. Wages are rising across the board, and those at the bottom of the income ladder are enjoying the percentage by far largest gains. Workers' wages are now growing faster than management wages. Earnings growth for the bottom 10 percent is outpacing the top 10 percent, something that has not happened. Paychecks for high school graduates are rising faster than for college graduates. Young Americans just entering the workforce are also sharing in America's extraordinary prosperity. Since I took office, more than two million millennials have gotten jobs, and their wages have grown by nearly 5 percent annually, a number that was unthinkable. Nobody would have ever thought it was possible three years ago. A record number of Americans between the ages of 25 and 34 are now working. In the eight years before I took office, over 300,000 working-age people left the workforce. In just three years in my administration, 3.5 million people have joined the workforce. Ten million people headed off welfare in less than three years. Celebrating the dignity of work is a fundamental pillar of our agenda. This is a blue-collar boom. Since my election, the net worth of the bottom half of wage earners has increased by plus 47 percent, three times faster than the increase for the top 1 percent. Real median household income is at the highest level ever recorded. The American dream is back, bigger, better, and stronger than ever before. No one is benefiting more than America's middle class. We have created 1.2 million manufacturing and construction jobs, a number also unthinkable. After losing 60,000 factories under the previous two administrations, hard to believe when you hear 60,000 factories, America has now gained, in a very short period of time, 12,000 new factories under my administration, and the number is going up rapidly. We'll be beating the 60,000 number that we lost, except these will be bigger, newer, and the latest. Years of economic stagnation have given way to a roaring geyser of opportunity. U.S. stock markets have soared by more than 50 percent since my election, adding more than $19 trillion to household wealth and boosting 401ks, pensions, and college savings accounts for millions of hardworking families. And these great numbers are many things. And it's despite the fact that the Fed has raised rates too fast and lowered them too slowly. And even now, as the United States is by far the strongest economic power in the world, it's not even close. It was going to be close, but a lot of good things happened to us and some not-so-good things happened to certain other places. They're forced to compete, and we compete with nations that are getting negative rates, something very new, meaning they get paid to borrow money, something that I could get used to very quickly. 
Love that. Got to pay back your loan? Oh, how much am I getting? Nevertheless, we still have the best numbers that we've had in so many different areas. It's a conservative approach, and we have a tremendous upside potential when all of the trade deals and the massive deregulation starts kicking in, which will be during this year, especially toward the end of the year. Those trade deals are starting to kick in already. The regulations are kicking in right now. And I see such tremendous potential for the future. We have not even started because the numbers we're talking about are massive. The time for skepticism is over. People are flowing back into our country. Companies are coming back into our country. Many of you who I know are coming back in with your plants and your factories. Thank you very much. America's newfound prosperity is undeniable, unprecedented, and unmatched anywhere in the world. America achieved this stunning turnaround not by making minor changes to a handful of policies, but by adopting a whole new approach centered entirely on the well-being of the American worker. Every decision we make on taxes, trade, regulation, energy, immigration, education, and more is focused on improving the lives of everyday Americans. We are determined to create the highest standard of living that anyone can imagine. And right now, that's what we're doing for our workers, the highest in the world. And we're determined to ensure that the working and middle class reap the largest gains. A nation's highest duty is to its own citizens. Honoring this truth is the only way to build faith and confidence in the market system. Only when governments put their own citizens first will people be fully invested in their national futures. In the United States, we are building an economy that works for everyone, restoring the bonds of love and loyalty that unite citizens and powers nations. Today, I hold up the American model as an example to the world of a working system of free enterprise that will produce the most benefits for the most people in the 21st century and beyond. A pro-worker, pro-citizen, pro-family agenda demonstrates how a nation can thrive when its communities, its companies, its government, and its people work together for the good of the whole nation. As part of this new vision, we passed the largest package of tax cuts and reforms in American history. We doubled the child tax credit, benefiting 40 million American families and lifting 650,000 single mothers and their one million children out of poverty and out of poverty quickly. We passed the first ever tax credit for employers who provide paid paternal leave for employees earning $72,000 or less annually and passed paid family leave for government employees as a model for the country. We made child care much more affordable and reduced or eliminated child care wait lists all across the nation. Our child care reforms are supporting working parents and ensuring their children have access to high quality care and education, all of which they very much deserve. We lowered our business tax from the highest in the developed world down to one that's not only competitive, but one of the lower taxes. 
We created nearly 9,000 opportunity zones in distressed communities where capital gains on long-term investments are now taxed at zero. And tremendous wealth is pouring into areas that for 100 years saw nothing. The 35 million Americans who live in these areas have already seen their home values rise by more than $22 billion. My administration has also made historic investments in historically black colleges and universities. I saved HBCUs. We saved them. They were going out, and we saved them. We're removing roadblocks to success and rewarding businesses that invest in workers, families, and communities. We've also launched the most ambitious campaign in history to reduce job-killing regulations. For every new regulation adopted, we are removing eight old regulations, which will save an average of American households about $3,100 per year. It was going to be for everyone. We do, too. But we were able to lift that to eight, and we think that's going to go quite a bit higher. We still have a way to go. Today, I urge other nations to follow our example and liberate your citizens from the crushing weight of bureaucracy. With that, you have to run your own countries the way you want. We are also restoring the constitutional rule of law in America, which is essential to our economy, our liberty, and our future. And that's why we've appointed over 190 federal judges, a record, to interpret the law as written. 190 federal judges, think of that, and two Supreme Court judges. As a result of our efforts, investment is pouring into our country. In the first half of 2019, the United States attracted nearly one quarter of all foreign direct investment in the world. Think of that. 25% of all foreign investment all over the world came into the United States, and that number is increasing rapidly. To every business looking for a place where they are free to invest, build, thrive, innovate, and succeed, there is no better place on earth than the United States. As a central part of our commitment to building an inclusive society, we established the National Council for the American Worker. We want every citizen, regardless of age or background, to have the cutting-edge skills to compete and succeed in tomorrow's workplace. This includes critical industries like artificial intelligence, quantum computing, and 5G. Under Ivanka's leadership, who's with us today, our pledge to America's workers has become a full-blown national movement with over 400 companies committing to provide new job and training opportunities to already very close to 15 million American students and workers. 15 million. America is making sweeping changes to place workers and their families at the center of our national agenda. Perhaps the most transformative change of all is on trade reform, where we're addressing chronic problems that have been ignored, tolerated, or enabled for decades. Our leaders did nothing about what happened to us on trade. Before I was elected, China's predatory practices were undermining trade for everyone. But no one did anything about it except allow it to keep getting worse and worse and worse. Under my leadership, America confronted the problem head-on. 
Under our new Phase 1 agreement, Phase 2 is starting negotiations very shortly. China has agreed to substantially do things that they would not have done, measures to protect intellectual property, stop forced technology transfers, remove trade barriers and agricultural goods and on agricultural goods where uh, we were treated so badly, open its financial sector totally, that's done, and maintain a stable currency, all backed by very, very strong enforcement. Our relationship with China right now has probably never been better. We went through a very rough patch, but it's never, ever been better. My relationship with President Xi is an extraordinary one. He's for China, I'm for the U.S., but other than that, we love each other. <laughs> Additionally, China will spend an additional $200 billion over two years on American services, agriculture and energy, and manufactured goods. So we'll be taking in in excess of $200 billion, could be closer to $300 billion when it finishes. But these achievements would not have been possible without the implementation of tariffs, which we had to use, and we're using them on others, too. And that is why most of our tariffs on China will remain in place during the Phase 2 negotiations. For the most part, the tariffs have been left, and we're being paid billions and billions of dollars a year as a country. As I mentioned earlier, we ended the NAFTA disaster, one of the worst trade deals ever made, not even close, and replaced it with the incredible new trade deal, the USMCA, that's Mexico and Canada. In the nearly 25 years after NAFTA, the United States lost one in four manufacturing jobs, including nearly one in four vehicle manufacturing jobs. It was an incentive to leave the country. The NAFTA agreement exemplified the decades-long failures of the international trading system. The agreement shifted wealth to the hands of a few, promoted massive outsourcing, drove down wages and shuttered plants and factories by the thousands. The plants would leave our country, make the product, sell it into our country. We ended up with no jobs and no taxes, but buy other countries' product. That doesn't happen anymore. This is the wreckage that I was elected to clean up. It's probably the reason I ran for president more than any other thing, because I couldn't understand why we were losing all of these jobs to other countries at such a rapid rate. And it got worse and worse, and I think it's probably the primary reason that I ran. But there are other reasons also. And to replace with a new system that puts workers before the special interests, and the special interests will do just fine, but the workers come first. Our brand new USMCA is the result of the broadest coalition ever assembled for a trade agreement. Manufacturing, agriculture, and labor all strongly endorsed the deal. And as you know, it just passed in Congress overwhelmingly. It shows how to solve the 21st century challenge we, we all face, protecting intellectual property, expanding digital trade, reshoring lost jobs, and ensuring rising wages and living standards. The United States has also concluded a great new trade deal with Japan, approximately $40 billion, and completely renegotiated our deal with South Korea. We're also 
negotiating many other transactions with many other countries. And we look forward to negotiating a tremendous new deal with the United Kingdom. I have a wonderful new prime minister and wants very much to make a deal, as they say, to protect our security and our economy. We are also boldly embracing American energy independence. The United States is now by far the number one producer of oil and natural gas anywhere in the world, by far. It's not even close. While many European countries struggle with crippling energy costs, the American energy revolution is saving American families $2,500 every year in lowering electric bills and numbers that people said couldn't happen. And also, very importantly, prices at the pump. We've been so successful that the United States no longer needs to import energy from hostile nations. With an abundance of American natural gas now available, our European allies no longer have to be vulnerable to unfriendly energy suppliers either. We urge our friends in Europe to use America's vast supply and achieve true energy security. With U.S. companies and researchers leading the way, we are on the threshold of virtually unlimited reserves of energy, including from traditional fuels, LNG, clean coal, next-generation nuclear power, and gas hydrate technologies. At the same time, I'm proud to report the United States is among the cleanest air and drinking water on Earth, and we're going to keep it that way. And we just came out with a report that at this moment, it's the cleanest it's been in the last 40 years. We're committed to conserving the majesty of God's creation and the natural beauty of our world. Today, I'm pleased to announce the United States will join One Trillion Trees Initiative being launched here at the World Economic Forum. One Trillion Trees. And in doing so, we will continue to show strong leadership in restoring, growing, and better managing our trees and our forests. This is not a time for pessimism. This is a time for optimism. Fear and doubt is not a good thought process because this is a time for tremendous hope and joy and optimism and action. But to embrace the possibilities of tomorrow, we must reject the perennial prophets of doom and their predictions of the apocalypse. They are the heirs of yesterday's foolish fortune tellers, and I have them, and you have them, and we all have them. And they want to see us do badly, but we don't let that happen. They predicted an overpopulation crisis in the 1960s, mass starvation in the 70s, and an end of oil in the 1990s. These alarmists always demand the same thing, absolute power to dominate, transform, and control every aspect of our lives. We will never let radical socialists destroy our economy, wreck our country, or eradicate our liberty. America will always be the proud, strong, and unyielding bastion of freedom. In America, we understand what the pessimists refuse to see that a growing and vibrant market economy focused on the future lifts the human spirit and excites creativity strong enough to overcome any challenge, any challenge by far. 
the great scientific breakthroughs of the 20th century, from penicillin to high-yield wheat to modern transportation and breakthrough vaccines, have lifted living standards and saved billions of lives around the world. And we're continuing to work on things that you'll be hearing about in the near future, that even today, sitting here right now, you wouldn't believe it's possible that we have found the answers. You'll be hearing about it, but we have found answers to things that people said would not be possible, certainly not in a very short period of time. But the wonders of the last century will pale in comparison to what today's young innovators will achieve because they are doing things that nobody thought even feasible to begin. We continue to embrace technology, not to shun it. When people are free to innovate, millions will live longer, happier, healthier lives. For three years now, America has shown the world that the path to a prosperous future begins with putting workers first, choosing growth, and freeing entrepreneurs to bring their dreams to life. For anyone who doubts what is possible in the future, we need only look at the towering achievements of the past. Only a few hundred miles from here are some of the great cities of Europe, teeming centers of commerce and culture. Each of them is full of reminders of what human drive and imagination can achieve. Centuries ago, at the time of the Renaissance, skilled craftsmen and laborers looked upwards and built the structures that still touch the human heart. To this day, some of the greatest structures in the world have been built hundreds of years ago. In Italy, the citizens once started construction on what would be a 140-year project, the Duomo of Florence, credible, credible place. While the technology did not yet exist to complete their design, city fathers forged ahead anyway, certain that they would figure it out someday. These citizens of Florence did not accept limits to their high aspirations. And so the great dome was finally built. In France, another century-long project continues to hold such a grip on our hearts and our souls that even 800 years after its construction, when the Cathedral of Notre Dame was engulfed in flames last year, such a sad sight to watch, unbelievable sight, especially for those of us that considered it one of the great, great monuments and representing so many different things. The whole world grieved. Through her sanctuary now stands scorched and charred and a site that's hard to believe. When you got used to it, to look at it now, hard to believe. But we know that Notre Dame will be restored, will be restored magnificently. The great bells will once again ring out for all to hear, giving glory to God and filling millions with wonder and awe. The cathedrals of Europe teach us to pursue big dreams, daring adventures, and unbridled ambitions. They urge us to consider not only what we build today, but what we will endure long after we are gone.
They testify to the power of ordinary people to realize extraordinary achievements when united by a grand and noble purpose. So together, we must go forward with confidence, determination, and vision. We must not be timid or meek or fearful, but instead we must boldly seize the day and embrace the moment. We have so many great leaders in this room, not only business leaders, but leaders of nations. And some are doing such a fantastic job. We work together very closely. We will draw strength from the glories of the past, and we will make greatness our common mission for the future. Together, we will make our nations stronger, our countries safer, our culture richer, our people freer, and the world more beautiful than ever before. Above all else, we will forever be loyal to our workers, our citizens, and our families. The men and women who are the backbone of our economies, the heart of our communities, and the soul of our countries. Let us bring light to their lives one by one and empower them to light up the world. Thank you very much. God bless you. God bless your countries and God bless America. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's how you do it. That's how you school them all by telling them this is how you lead by creating a nation of prosperity, by providing opportunities, by promoting competition, not with all this fluffy stuff. He did incredible. That was a stellar speech. Hats off to the speechwriter, I have to say. And this was something that they were very upset about because it was a great speech. It addressed every single thing that every citizen in every corner of the world wants to hear from a leader, that they are investing in them, that they want them to prosper and they want them to become rich and compete and work for what they have. And that is how you do it. Now, even though Davos started off with that Greta kid that's never in school, the autistic one that is telling all of us what we're supposed to be doing and how, how dare you, you know, she's sitting there saying her little tidbit. We also add, you know, some salt on wounds coming in from the Clinton side today on Bernie Sanders, all of them scoffing at his speech. I mean, they couldn't say much about his speech in Davos more so, um, because it was so eloquently put and um, such a great jab uh, at all of them. But as we see on a global scale, things are starting to get weird. And the weirdness started when I saw that Barack Hussein Obama and his, uh, you know, wife, Michael, were sitting and they were talking uh, with the prince, uh, with Prince Harry, right? And his wife, um, Princess uh, Merkel. And so Meghan and him uh, decided that they're leaving royal life in England to go to Canada. And that was on their suggestion. Remember, Barack Hussein Obama has been hanging out in Trudeauville for a while. Needless to say, um, this isn't a coincidence. Because just before they made that announcement, Canada, I think, was pushing in a law, a referendum, um, to install royal um, 
persons, you know, as part of the crown, because, you know, Canada is part of the crown. Okay. Their money have Queen Elizabeth on it. Right. So they have the same queen and kings and princes. So Prince Harry going into Canada is not something unexpected considering the timing of the discussion. But here is how Prince Harry explained it, how he explained why they are walking away from royal life. And it wasn't what he really wanted. You have to listen to this. This is pretty interesting how he's running for cover. They're all running for cover, okay? Um, Because the pain is here. And today, there was a smackdown that hasn't been publicized yet. Let's just put it that way. On a global scale, we're talking, uh, which was pretty interesting. Because this informal, you know, chit-chat he had um, at the UK Africa Investment Summit, uh, he actually uh, said that he returned back to royal duty um came after he said he would continue to be the same man who holds his country dear. So basically what triggered him and during his speech, he was saying that, uh, you know, he was really sad that he had to do this, but it's a decision that I did for my wife to stay back. And it wasn't something that I just did on a whim. It was many months. So we talked about this and, you know, we want to get it just right, but there's no other option. We're not walking away. Uh, We're not walking away from you. It sounded like a dear John letter. And, um, And I quote, he said, our hope was to continue serving the queen, the Commonwealth and my military associations, but without public funding. Unfortunately, that wasn't possible. I've accepted this knowing that it doesn't change who I am or how committed I am. And that is what he said. He also said that, um, he would step back. Um, he would, um, step back, um, away from his family and everything in order to move forward with a peaceful life. And, you know, and he was like, you know, I didn't ask for this life. I was kind of born into it and it's my honor to serve the country and the queen. And so he, um, Harry actually set up a legacy fund, right. For, um, princess Diana, uh, supporting those that have HIV and AIDS and, um, uh, was talking about this, uh, you know, you know, this fund while Megan is already in Canada with their son. So he actually said during the speech, when I lost my mom 23 years ago, it took, um, you know, all of you took me under your wing. He's talking about the UK Africa summit, right? Uh, you looked after me for so long. The media is a powerful force. And my hope is that one day our collective support for each other can be more powerful because it's so much bigger. I can learn to us more than just us. It has been our privilege to serve you and will continue to lead a life of service. They have left the building, you guys. And it's more so that the queen stripped him of the title because she didn't want this neo-leftist move. And he decided, well, I'm going to step back and you're going to see that you're going to need me because this is how it's going to work out. This is what's going on, you guys. You know, this is exactly how it's going to go on. So the royals are running away. 
Meghan Merkel went in there and she threw a wrench in it with Barack Hussein Obama and obviously, you know, Beyonce and whatnot. So he can't even, you know, fathom the fact that now he's, uh, you know, no longer, you know, with tons and tons of money uh, from the crown. But, you know, he's 35 years old and he's decided uh, to target, um, I guess, a position of power that a lot of that doesn't exist and that is being manufactured just for him. Canada is literally creating the legislation to have this happen. And so um, even though everyone is hearing, uh, you know, oh, it's racism. Oh, they were nice to her. Oh, how horrible. No, it was all part of their plan. I mean, I've already told you the New World Order was not just about having one planet arc. It was having regional sections of royal rule of the crown or the elites. And then each section would be received just like the Hunger Games. Like, think about it. These things are, these movies that we watch are not far-fetched. They're pretty much on point. So it's coming to that, you guys. It's really coming to that. And even though everyone's like, oh, this is so brave. Oh, this. The real story is it's kind of nefarious. Uh, brace yourselves in Canada because things are about to change. Um, I think I saw a message from someone uh, during this turmoil of mine um, expressing uh, the concerns and expressing what is um, coming uh, in regards to legislation about the crown and creating a more royal position of ruling. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm there with you. I see it. And unfortunately, a lot of people have missed that memo. Why is Barack Hussein Obama and his wife, Michael, talking to these people? Why are they promoting this? And speaking of royalty and, you know, clown elites, uh, you know, Hillary Clinton's really PO'd at Bernie Sanders because he lost because she cheated. And that cheating now is taking them out one by one. This is why they're so rapidly insane to remove, um, you know, President Trump. This is why. Uh, so she, she had like this scathing interview. Nobody likes Bernie. Nobody likes to work with him. He's like delusional. Speak of delusion. What? You're delusional. You thought you were going to be president after you have a long list of people that have been mysteriously, you know, mysteriously all committed suicide, disappeared or murdered. Um, you know, with two bullets to the back of the head, plus, you know, silencing, plus stealing the White House China, plus child trafficking, plus Epstein Jet, plus the gold mining in Haiti, the diamond mining, the child mining, all of that. Cloud fair data mining, blah, blah, blah. And she was delusional. So she's calling him delusional? Come on, man. Like, for real. Now, Speaking of for real stuff, there was something really, really weird that um, crossed my path that I wanted to talk about yesterday, but uh, having been away from live shows for, you know, so many days, uh, you know, time kind of got the best of me. And this was very interesting, okay? So, I, and I didn't mention it at the beginning of the show because I forgot about it, but Hillary Clinton reminded me because every time I think of Hillary Clinton, I think of the BS Russia hoax, and then it's like Russia. So the 
thing that I remembered was that uh, it was uh, while I was traveling, I uh, saw, well, I heard on um, uh, Russian, uh, Russian radio, and my Russian kind of sucks, that um, the Russian government, like the whole government, like the parliament, if you want to say it, resigned. Like they legit, all of them resigned after President Putin gave his State of the Union. And the reason they resigned is, um, you know, so the Russian prime minister actually came out and said the entire government is resigning because of what President Vladimir Putin said during his State of the Union address. And Putin actually accepted their resignation. So, you know, they could resign, but the president could say, I'm not accepting it. Right. So then it's like a debate kind of thing. But he actually accepted it and thanked all the ministers, their the cabinet. It's like a cabinet slash parliament, if you want to say it, um, for their hard work and asked them to function as a caretaker until new a new government can be formed. So um, Medvedev and um, Putin met and they were discussing this State of the Union address before they were going to... Um, before he was going to make it. And so what he explained was that the cabinet is resigning in accordance to a specific article in the Russian constitution, which says that the government can offer its resignation to the president who can either accept or reject it. Like I told you. So what's really weird is, is that president Putin actually suggested, listen to this, changing the constitution. He said he intended to create the position of a deputy secretary of Russia's security council, and he was going to give it to Medvedev. So they didn't like that because that's changing their structure, that he was going to create this new position for Russia's security council. So an RC for them would kind of be like the secondhand man, like official, right? And so... This move would mean that Russia has to have a new prime minister form. So they have to resign. Now, he also um, not only did he create this new position, but he proposed that they make several um, changes to Russia's constitution. So it would change the constitution a lot. So. Uh, you know how they say balance of power, you know, executive legislation, judiciary, um, uh, because he wants to change the balance. He wants to keep it more balanced. So in the, in, in that sense, the president, you know, can obviously make whatever decisions he wants. And he proposed his plan. Now, um, Medvedev became prime minister in 2012, uh, and he was also president for four years. And now he's the head of the United Russia party. Just so you guys know that now, um, the lower parliament, which is state Duma, uh, would be granted power to appoint the prime minister and the rest of the cabinet um, by approving, you know, certain um, candidacies that are there. Now, one thing you guys need to understand is that Putin, aside from just saying that he wants to change the Constitution and keep it more balanced with three branches of governments, mimicking that of the United States, um, he also wanted to um, create like a... Um, a, a, a regulatory body, something called like the state council in order to create um, a more standard and solid place, you know, of where discussions and think tanks in regards to 
overseeing these um, three uh, legislative, judicial, and executive branches together. And so he wants to put that in the Constitution, too. And he thinks that's best if there's a bridge among all three that oversees them. So that is that is pretty astounding, you know. And them all resigning is kind of like changing the whole face of Russia's structure. Now, that is a very big deal considering where we're at in global policy in general. Uh, things are a little bit different. Things are a little bit iffy per se, and uh, things are heating up a lot. So the fact that um, Putin would do this now out of all times further solidifies with the whole, oh, I'm up for negative interest rates, uh, that the gold standard is not far away. And I think that terrifies uh, the deep state and the cabal even more because that means they lose a lot a lot of money, uh, tons of money. So that's that's interesting. So we'll see. Um, uh, after the break, we'll talk about the NSA, which is very important. Um, but we'll start off with Giuliani and Parnas, which is important. And then we'll, you know, roll into the NSA and talk about a few things. Um, some things that actually came to light for me, I thought, you know, maybe it's a good time that we talk about how the NSA um, buys info. I don't know. I'll see y'all in a bit. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tori Sess Show. I'm your host, Tori, Monday through Friday, 12 to 2 Eastern on Red State Talk Radio. So like I said uh, in the previous hour and right before our break, uh, we're going to be talking about Lev Parnas and Giuliani because Giuliani spoke up yesterday. We're also going to kind of visit the whole Bernie bro um, situation and how James O'Keefe is exposing commie Bernie uh, to the T. And then we're just going to talk about the NSA. Um, and this topic is really elaborate and intricate. Remember, the NSA is not an agency that does reports. The NSA is not an agency that sends out spies to assassinate people or anything like that. They're the buggers. They're the data collectors. They're the ones that create USB keys full of data and encrypt things and decrypt things and store things and search for things. But they do not at any time enforce the law, provide reports, anything. They're just data. Think of them like the massive, yeah, they're just collectors. Collectors of information, like a library. There we go. Library of data. That's what they are. And their librarians don't just check information out and in. They go and find ways to get it. So we're going to talk about that. So I think it's important we start with Giuliani. Um, it, there was a great um, interaction he had on uh, the Ingram angle that I, I think is important that all of you here, those of you that have missed it, um, so that way we can revisit what I said about Lev Parnas before. Mm, it's a trap. Mm, there we go. Let's get this going. And Katie and indicted Ukrainian businessman Lev Parnas. Now, he's been leveling some serious accusations, not only at the president and other top officials, but also at Trump's personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani. 
Rudy Giuliani joins us now exclusively. Rudy, great to see you tonight. Um, well, your name was all over the news last week, thanks to uh, your former whatever he is, Mr. Client. Parnas. Um, everyone in the media is waiting for your response. We really appreciate your joining us tonight. So first, I want you to listen to the remarks from Parnas. Did anybody in the U.S. government or Mr. Giuliani actually convey to officials in Ukraine that you were there as a representative of Absolutely. President Trump? The first thing I did is to introduce myself and tell him I'm here on behalf of Rudy Giuliani and the President of the United States. I wouldn't do anything without the consent of Rudy Giuliani or the President. I have no intent, I have no reason to speak to any of these officials. It was all about Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, and uh, also Rudy had a personal thing with the Manafort stuff. Rudy, your response. <laughs> well, my, my response is that uh, Lev is someone I'm, I was close to. Obviously, I was misled by, by him. I feel very bad. I was godfather to his child and Svetlana's child. I still feel sorry for him. I'm not going to respond to him uh, for each uh, and every one of the misrepresentations he's made because there are so many. If I'm called as a witness, I'm prepared to do it. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't mind being called as a witness for a lot of reasons, including being able to reveal the unbelievable amount of corruption that went on between the Democratic Party and Ukraine all throughout the Obama administration. I think people would be astounded to know the hundreds of millions of dollars that illegally passed hands between Americans and Ukrainians. I got it, Rudy, period. but no, nobody, everyone watching tonight is going to think, and I'm, I just know how it all plays out, as do you. You've been doing this for decades. They're all going to say, well, Rudy Giuliani will not respond to the allegation that the president uh, was directing him to direct Parnas to do what he was doing in Ukraine to put the pressure I on the will, Ukrainian I will, government. I will tell you that he, uh, in very large part, did not tell the truth. I will give you a couple of examples that are public. I will not be sucked into a point-by-point -point response, which I am ready to give in great detail in front of Congress or a court, in which uh, it will turn out that he lied multiple times. I'll give you one. He said that he was part of a meeting that he was called into during a Hanukkah party at the White House. And the president and during that meeting deputized him and told him that he was going to be like his representative. Uh, there were four people in that meeting. The four people in that meeting, myself, his former partner, Igor Fruman, and two others say that it's absolutely untrue. The meeting never took place. The records demonstrate the meeting never took place. So he that also, would indicate that he wasn't being that he wasn't being directed by the president through you. No, no, it indicates that he lied. He was doing. No, no, well, it indicates that he lied, misrepresented it, like Michael Cohen did. Let me give you a second example. Uh, they put out a story that uh, Congressman Nunez met with uh, Victor Shokin in Vienna in 2018, making yeah, it like a horrible thing that Devin Nunez did. Uh, Lev Parnas put out that story. Uh, Lev Parnas once again lied. Uh, Devin Nunez was not in Vienna at the time. His passport demonstrates that. Yeah, His we covered that. His videotapes demonstrate that. Yeah, me, we've covered that. But no, please let me finish because I have to answer it my way. Uh, the second part of it is that I interviewed under oath Mr. Shokin. Mr. Shokin is prepared to show that he hadn't been in Vienna for seven years, never talked to Devin Nunez, and that Mr. Parnas lied about him. Now, how many times do I have to prove a man is a liar? before he isn't featured any longer as the okay. main witness 
for all you people in the so, press. The so, man so is you, a demonstrated liar. Okay, so you I cannot his go credibility. through every single right, one of the things that he said. I get it. I, get I can it. assure you, as those two lies I just demonstrated, he didn't just lie, he lied stupidly. What's he his lied, motivation? You know what a stupid lying? lie is? A stupid lie is when your partner, Igor Fruman, can contradict you. A stupid lie is when there's a tape recording that can contradict you. A stupid lie is when there's a passport that can contradict you. But I can't possibly go through all the lies that he told. All right, all right Rudy, let's move on because this is area that uh, that. Uh, What's his motivation? Yeah. His motivation is not to go to prison. The same thing okay. as Michael Cohen. That's what I figured you were going to say. That's what, that's what, that's what our idea Come on. That's What's his motivation? Obvious. All right, Rudy, what, uh, the um, other big unfortunately, question. Unfortunately, the man's got character got tested. Yeah. Well, he was and a he said, like, I'll, I will, you, you must I will be lie my way yeah. out. Am I disappointed? Yeah. I'm heartbroken. Yeah, yeah you must. I'm heartbroken. A, a, a personal betrayal of that. I, I am heartbroken. Yeah. Uh, and the lies are not just lies. They're stupid lies which means he is extremely poorly represented. I don't let my client go in and tell a story that four people can contradict All right, without Rudy, checking it out. Well, help me out. I want to move on. Let's let's move on to the other <laughs> allegation, which was that you directed the surveillance of a sitting U.S. ambassador. Right. Marie no, I did in not. Ukraine. No, I can definitely tell you I didn't. In fact, she directed the surveillance of me, which nobody's investigating and of uh, Mr. Solomon. And of uh, and of your co uh, colleague Sean Hannity oh, and of I'm, Donald I'm Trump list, Jr. I'm on the list. Oh, are you no. on the list? Yeah, Nobody's yeah. investigating that. Nobody's investigating Biden's bribery. Nobody's investigating the surveillance of a lawyer, of a newspaper reporter. Nobody is uh, investigating the money laundering charge against Hunter Biden, which I have as a matter of record. Nobody's investigating the money. That Biden's brother took out of Iraq the last time he was appointment, another half billion dollars. They don't investigate Democrats. They are afraid. They're afraid of what the media will do to them. Instead, they take chicken, you know the next word, charges, and they exaggerate them against Republicans. It is so disgusting, the double standard. So he's disgusting. Also, he's, and he's I've got a big surprise coming up. I'm oh, going to devote a lot of my time this year exposing the double standard on my own podcast. Oh, fun. I, and okay. I'll do it, and I'll do it with records, recordings, tape recordings, financial records. A lot of people were pulling a lot of money out of Ukraine, and I learned a lot more about Ukraine than I did just the millions that Joe Biden stole right. there, do you, and the yeah. millions that he stole in Iraq, the, and the millions okay. that he stole in China, and it is a disgrace that he's not under investigation. Well, it Bill Barr, a, speaking a, of Bill Barr, because he could be doing a lot of these investigations, uh, Parnas is saying that Barr was aware okay, I'll of make another all definitive your, statement. Hold on, let me play it. Well, also, a lot I of know, don't know what this I'm one, talking This about. one I can answer definitively for you. Okay, let's just play it, and then you can react. Watch. Do you know if Mr. Giuliani was ever in contact with Mr. Barr specifically about the fact that he was trying to get Ukraine to announce these investigations into Joe Biden? Oh, absolutely. Mr. Was... Barr knew about that. Mr. Barr had to have known everything. I mean, it's impossible. But Parnas also sent a letter to A.G. Barr arguing, given That's the totality of the circumstances, right. we believe it's appropriate for you to recuse yourself from the ongoing investigation and pending prosecution of Mr. Parnas. Rudy, was the attorney general in on whatever was going on there in the Ukraine? I have never spoken to Attorney General Barr about this investigation ever. Not one word 
to Attorney General Barr about this investigation. Not even a congratulations on how well he's handling it. I have been circumspect, careful, exceedingly careful. Not only that, Parnas knows that. I told Parnas several times that I would make sure I would never go to the attorney general with it so I wouldn't compromise him. That is a flat out, absolute, despicable lie. I am very disappointed and hurt by him. But that one really is a shame to try to implicate somebody who had nothing to do with it. I never, I'll tell you this definitively, never spoke to Attorney General Barr about this investigation. Never once. Rudy, uh, we really appreciate your being here tonight. Um, Parnas has been showcased all over some of our Why you can take an unreliable yeah. man, an unreliable source proven because to have lied get the president. by... Hey. It's not the first time, right, that they take an unreliable source. Remember that Native American who was feeling threatened by Nick Sandman and all of the media played how he was being, you know, harassing to an old Native American veteran. Turns out that guy's in jail now and the media had to pay a nice pretty penny um, for the reputation of that young boy, if you remember. So the media has no uh, morals, doesn't care, will say what is in their best interests, and they demonstrate what they want to you. They tell you how you're supposed to think, what you're supposed to think, and how you're supposed to think it. Because remember, it's all about control. It's all about power. Even so, you know, I uh, pretty much gave you all the quotes of what Prince Harry said, this muddy type of um, statements, right? Remember when we talked about Prince Harry in the first hour, Um the media reported on the queen announcing the new details in a very different light. Same thing here with Lev Parnas. It's not what it is. You can't take people uh, that are not credible and put them on the horn and make them credible, um, especially when suddenly, you know, they flip sides. Uh, oh, you know, yeah, we're totally, I'm totally, yes, Donald Trump, 100%, this, this, I supported him, I did, but I had to say something. Dude, the only thing that this Ukrainian did was help with his Ukrainian connections, set up meetings or help uh, a, a, arrange interpreters. That is all he did. And I have lawyers that have been my lawyer or that are just friends that'll ask me, hey, you've been to this country before, Tori. Do you know anyone? Do you know a hotel I can stay at? Do you know who you could put me in contact with so I can get with this person? Sure. And I just like, here's the number. Or I'll call up, you know, that CEO or that person's secretary and say, hey, I have a friend that wants to meet up. Let me make that connect. So him delving into detail with Giuliani about things is not true because no matter what it is, and especially when you're talking about the executive branch and how that goes, it's not true. But I can tell you it's a trap. So nobody really cares, right? We don't care because it's a trap. It's a trap. And let them have a trap. So to compare and contrast of what's actually going on with Harry and Megan. Here's what ABC News told you about Harry and Megan. Look how wild this is. It is 
it is pretty astounding. I'm telling you, like, you're just going to be like, what? How'd that happen? Hold on. Let's see. There we go. Nope. That's not it. Let's see. There we go. That's Lev. Hold on. Let's get to the queen. I want to get to the queen's announcement. Give me a second. And it's not wanting to give me the queen's announcement for some reason. Did they take it offline? I'm very upset if that happens. Come on, ABC. You can't be that um, blatant. There we go. Found it. William and Harry walking through life together, inseparable as children, laughing alongside their mother, Diana, sharing in their grief at her funeral. They grew up in the spotlight, leaning on one another, standing. So that's the intro. Now they we have some you. royal news. Uh, pre- but I skipped over to the royal news of ABC. So they give you all this like, oh, Princess Diana. Oh, he must be hurt. Oh, this is a period of transition for the young prince. It's Harry speaking publicly for the first time about his family's decision to step back from royal life and why he says there was, quote, really no other option. So let's go to James Longman at Buckingham Palace with the latest details on that. Good morning, James. Yeah, good morning, Robin. I think we saw Prince Harry at the most open I think we ever seen him last night. It's clear this is not how he wanted things to go. He defended his wife, Meghan, saying she's the same woman that he fell in love with. And he said when they were married, they were excited, they were ready to serve. How things have changed. Before I begin, I must say that I can only imagine what you may have heard or perhaps read over the past few weeks. So... I want you to hear the truth from me, as much as I can share, not as a prince or a duke, but as Harry. Overnight, a candid Prince Harry speaking out for the first time about his decision to step back as a senior member of the royal family. The decision that I have made for my wife and I to step back is not one I made lightly. It was so many months of talks after so many years of challenges. And I know I have yeah, a... yeah, yeah. Here we go. Let's Harry, get to the as juice. we'll call him in due course, all his life since he was born. I mean, I, I remember when he was born, I saw him going through the army. And I think that when his, wife, when his mother died, I think there was a great sense of anguish for him. And I think that that continues because people feel throughout the United Kingdom a great warmth towards this young man and uh, his desire to get his marriage sorted out and to wish him well. But, you know, the monarchy is not something you can just dip into and dip out of. And I know it must have seemed possible to him that he could, but it's been pointed out that because the monarchy must be kept clear of the danger of being seen to benefit for any of its members from any financial advantage that they might get from being royal, he's just had to make these rather difficult decisions and he's gone. Difficult decisions. Now, here's the queen announcing the period of transition. It's kind of like the mob. You can't just say, yep, I'm in. And then it's like, sorry, I'm out. That's not now how Now we works. have some royal news. Uh, Prince- Why does it keep doing that? That's pretty bizarre. But the Queen Elizabeth finally. The Megxit that the five said uh, responding to the queen breaking her silent, uh, you know, her silence was a very big deal. Again, they're telling you what to think. They're telling you to see it one way. This is where you wake up and this is where the awakening is here, where we see the bigger picture. 
Because just like the mob, you can't just decide I'm leaving my crown. Never in history has that ever happened where a king says, I don't want to be a king. Or a prince says, you know what? I just want to go be a farmer and I'm leaving. Doesn't happen because it brings disgrace to the name and the bloodline. And usually they're put to death. So obviously this is not what it seems. They weighing in on the Megxit drama, and it looks like she is going to give Harry and Meghan what they want. The Queen speaking out after a high-stakes summit with a royal family today. She says she is entirely supportive of Prince Harry and Duchess Meghan's future plans, but adds that there is more work to be done, and final decisions will be reached in the coming days. Okay, mm. Greg. Yes. Megan says that she will move to L.A., but only after Trump leaves office. All and right. for someone that is this self-proclaimed equalizer of inequities in the world, is this just another example of hypocrisy? All right. Part of me says that she's become gullible to the new wokeness. Mm. But my other part of me says that it might not be true. I think what they want is the wealth and fame without being tethered to pomp and circumstance. <clears throat> but they don't realize that it was the pomp and circumstance that brought them the wealth and fame. You know, remember, royalty was the original celebrity before there was TV and movies and sports. It was that. Now, they want to be more famous than this. They want to be George Clooney. They don't, want to be, they don't want to deal with this. But I think, you know what? I think they're looking at gift horse in the mouth, and I still can't get the shoes off my Peloton bike. <laughs> so I think I, my point is this. The shoes on the Peloton bike problem is more important to me than this yes, story. Right. Dana, the yes. queen talked about in that statement, I thought pretty carefully, you know, they've decided to just take a step back from the royal family, but they will remain valued members of my family. What do you think about that? I thought that was actually, that was a deft statement. And I think the queen's PR people are better than the PR people that Meghan and Harry hired. Um, they hired the people that dealt with Harvey Weinstein. I would not necessarily have gone with them. Hmm. And also, I'm surprised that in the statement, they still called them prince and duchess. Because, like, if you want to step back, then I think you relinquish the title. Um, also, they say that one of the problems was in Britain that they had too much media attention. Well, do they think that getting a job in Hollywood and is going to change that? It's going to be even more so. Do they think they're going to get more favorable coverage? Maybe for, like, six months. And then... Watch out. And it won't be controlled. The royalty, it's controlled. Absolutely. It's not controlled with TMZ. Yeah, so they're going to come here and the British tabloids, they're going to follow them to America. So they're going to get U.S. and British press. He's going to have an Alec Baldwin moment. He's going to sock a paparazzi right in the face. You can see it coming from a mile (laughs) away. I love Jesse. Okay, that was awesome. But see, he's not going to sock someone in the face. He's not going to have that moment because that's not going to happen. And let's put it this way. If you're royalty, you're not going to sit there and say, well, I'm not going to go there until someone leaves office. That's so not royalty. And even though Greg makes a great point, they want to be the Clooney, you know, they want to be rich and famous and they want to be super famous, people waiting on them hand and foot, but without the paparazzi, come on, guys, is there any more vicious paparazzi than that for, um, you know, our superstars per se? I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll pop up through your toilet if they can to grab a picture of you. And, you know, in the royal house, you won't have a paparazzi in your bathroom because they can't come to the castle um, and also the queen can shut your paper down with the snap of her fingers and so that was a very good statement saying that it's more controlled if you're a royal rather than not so again leading back to hey they're not really leaving they're starting a new crown center or I would say 
a subsidiary, a more substantial subsidiary of the crown. I heard from sources that something like that is being worked on in Australia. So that's a little bit bizarre, but we'll see how that pans out. Now, before we get into the meat of the NSA, we need to get into the expose about Bernie's, another staffer of Bernie. Um, This is a pretty interesting one. Uh, James O'Keefe has really done it, Um, just pretty much... Uh, showing the world their true colors and who these people really are. I mean, everybody knows that Bernie Sanders is a commie, but this is kind of spectacular, you guys. Because, uh, you know, I'm ready to start tearing. You can't hide this one. You can't hide this one. It is a spot. I caught you. You're done. And, you know, you can't you know, take those words back or your face, Mr. Staffer. Take a listen. Mm, great. It was playing before. It was he inspired. Here we go. He attained the risk. I'm ready to start tearing bricks up. I'm going to learn how to shoot and go train. I'm ready for the revolution. What Bernie did was he inspired people. He created a movement that started to flood Washington. Like, free speech has repercussions. So if Trump gets reelected, what? Cities burn. I think it's also fair to point out that when we were in Moscow, for example, people here also were extremely impressed by their public transportation system. He attained the red. The Soviet Union was not horrible. I always said, you know, I'm a communist. I'll straight up, I'll straight up get armed. And leave it to the Soviets to make the most badass, f-ing, most effective gun in the world. I guess better. The destruction, the destroyer of imperialism and colonization. Well, at least he's right about something. The AK-47. And uh, don't worry, Andrew Cuomo. I know we're in New York State. This is a replica. The AK-47 was developed by Mikhail Kalishnikov in 1947 and is the most ubiquitous rifle in the world. No wonder since it has 100% hit probability at even 100 meters. Our next Soviet sympathizer from the Sanders campaign is South Carolina field organizer Martin Weisgerber. If you were shocked by our expose on Sanders staffer Kyle Yurick's affinity for the Soviet gulags, Hold on, because this guy's got him beat. Weisgerber even suggests dissolving our democracy might be a good start for a Sanders dictatorship. So, do we just seize, do we just dissolve the, the Senate, House of Representatives, the Venice branch, and have somebody like Bernie Sanders and a cabinet of people make all the decisions for the climate? I mean, I'm serious. Yeah, the executor. We can't, we can't address the immediacy of the climate change on the current. Weisgerber laughs about sending the rich to the guillotine, getting armed and starting a revolution. Words that sound more like they were from the pages of Mao's Red Book than from a Democratic presidential campaign staffer. Knock on wood. If Bernie, right, if Bernie was to lose, I would like to see all of this protest like here, stateside. I'm already on Twitter following numerous groups around the country that are ready to organize yellow vest protest. I mean, I'm ready. Let me know. I'm ready to start tearing bricks up and start fighting. Good. I'm not. I'm no, no cop, bro. I'm not, I'll straight up. I'll straight up get arms. I want to learn how to shoot and go train. I'm ready for. 
Shut All up. right. I'm telling you. Good stuff. Guillotine the rich. Hell yeah. <laughs> the guillotine's very humane, too. Yeah. yeah it's humane. <laughs> it's humane. It's more humane than the cool. That now, I mean, that's debatable. Like, I think, I'm of the belief that, you know, I've read a little bit about the gulags. I think they're blown a little bit out of proportion. They were, they were mostly for re-education. I think. I don't know. What? Montana's like, she hears this spiel from me all the time. Oh, really? Yeah. I thought you guys were like, no way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think they were more for no, education. I'm like, yeah. You're, I, yeah, I think they're more for education. I'm like, realize they're founded as re-education. Right. What? I mean, I, I, I have, we have a joke that people we don't like, we say, send them to the gulag. What will help is when we send all the Republicans to the re-education. <laughs> Can you imagine Mitch McConnell? Oh god, he wouldn't survive a day. Lindsey Graham. <laughs> I only learned this in college when I started studying the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was not horrible. No, it wasn't. I mean, for women's rights, the Soviet Union is, I think, the most progressive place to date in the world. Racial rights, too. Yes. Bellomore Canal was constructed by 126,000 gulag inmates from 1930. People died while building the 141-mile-long canal. The first gulag that was opened, have you heard about the Bellomore Canal? No. They, they dug a canal. The plan was in 1922, I think, to dig a canal from the White Sea all the way to St. Petersburg. A long way. Okay. If you look on the map. Russia's big, yeah. Right, yeah. And the whole point of the, it was going to be called the Bellamore Canal. And this, I, re, I, I spent a whole semester actually studying first primary accounts from the Bellamore Canal. The whole point of the Bellamore Canal, there were no machines alive. You, they forced the people to dig with shovels and hay the whole canal, right? And you should see the people writing about their time at the Bellamore Canal. There's this one guy, he was a thief from Georgia, who had been captured, and he was sent to the Bellamore Canal to work. And in his writing, he's like, I reject all thievery, I reject that past life. And he said, capitalism made me a thief, because when there's poor people, there's going to be crime. He said, I went to the Bellamore Canal and I worked, and he became a shop worker, which is what they call the leading worker. Whoa. People who always met the quota and exceeded the quota. And like, people came from America to work in the Bellamore Canal for the Soviet project, for the communist project. Wow. And beautiful thing. And the Gulags became a lot more political as they went on. It was a tool. It's like a boogeyman. You know what? We have more people in prison in this country right now than Russia did at the height of the Gulag. Breach. We do. It's a, that's a nut. That's it's, a fact. It's essentially slavery. Disproportionate. Oh, it is. Well, and there's no education. No. I would like to see. Maybe it's a little bit sadistic. I mean, call it what you want. But I would like to see the billionaires kind of go into an American gulag, so to speak. I say that all the time. Break rocks. Like, but build something concrete. So let's, let's, let's force them to build roads, rebuild our roads, rebuild yeah. our dams, rebuild our bridges. Let's force them to do that. The Center left for me. I'd like a Marxist Leninist party in this country. <laughs> 
and Bernie's great. I mean, he's center left to me. He's great. He, yeah. He is the step in the right direction. He, that man is. I mean, it just fills me with so much joy what he's done. Like, yeah. He is. Our children will be learning about this. They'll be learning about the guy that wants to bring back gulags. Oh, my gosh. There's more. I mean, he transformed this nation whether he wins or not. Well, he is left, but I don't know if he's left enough. Like, that's my, that's my left enough. I don't know what he's down to do. Let's say he does, like, when he does get into office, because I think he will, I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know if he's going to be like, all right, we're going full on socialism. You know, you can call it democratic, whatever. I don't know what he's... I mean, willing to do. Debate about what can he do? How much can he do? The thing is, the president, shockingly, and I think we've seen this with Donald Trump, can actually do a lot. Executive, yeah, people don't realize that. Executive orders in terms of the environment, he can pass a lot. That just yeah. Also, appointing people. Also, what what Bernie did was he inspired people and he created a movement that started to flood Washington. Yeah. Democratic socialists are running all over. Have you been? There's so many Democratic socialists running. Weisgerber, an avowed communist, says he also supports anarcho-syndicalism, a method for workers in a capitalist society to gain control of an economy. He claims his influence came from his parents and the teachings of Engels and Marx. I think I was radicalized from the day of the first day of the war. Well, my dad is a Marxist. Like, he gets straight up from, from Belgium. Oh, wow. Yeah, he took part in Paris 16 and all that. Okay. I remember, because I remember you said in the office, you're talking about like Marxist Leninist. And I agree with it, but I, I tried to say it. It's not super popular, I think. It's not yet. What? No. Like being Marxism. being Marxist. Oh, yeah. yeah, Marxist affiliated lines. I've yeah. always made it. I've always been unapologetic about it. You know, when I was younger, uh-huh. I always said, you know, I'm a communist, but I was being, a, you know, a little. Ass- I didn't really know what that meant. I just knew that in my house we had, you know, Das Kapital and Engels and Marx and all that shit. In theory, I'm I'm a a communist that believes in direct democracy, direct communes on everything, pretty much anarcho-syndicalism. Nice. Unions, everything. But I don't know how effective that is in in addressing climate change. Yeah, in a corporate, we we live in a corporate, we live in a globalized system. Weisgerber says radicals in the Sanders campaign are on the rise. Everywhere. So, so what Bernie's doing is in the long run, he's flooding the offices with people that are like, oh wait, people like you and me that four years ago were like, this is impossible. Now we're like, oh shit. I mean, I'm even saying, with my level of radical, if this is where we are now, four years, if this is where we came from four years ago to now, when there's openly socialist people leading in polls, would never happen. What's going to be four years from now? His mom, who works for NPR's WBOR in Boston, is so far left, she doesn't feel comfortable sharing her ideology with her own network. 
My mom is very laughable as well, but she can't make her views known because she works for WBR, uh, PR, so she's more held back. But yeah, you gotta make her But then I went, I started studying it. And that's what I studied in college. I studied Russian, Soviet history. Wow. Yeah. I became the resident artist. <laughs> But, yeah, I'm all about um, complete seizure of the means of production, nationalizing everything. Nice. The biggest thing with being a Marxist is you can be a Marxist in, in how you analyze history. Okay. Rather than be a Marxist in how you think the future, the, the, path, of, the path we should take, right? Looking backwards... So for me, I started as a Marxist, like, my analysis of history, of the past, you know, is Marxist. Like, I believe everything has been formed by class struggles. Yeah. But in the, since, since medieval times. Right. You have, you have the um, field workers. It's always been a caste system. Even before that, the establishment of private property to me was what began. Like, misallocation of resources was what divided people. Leave it to the Soviets to make the most badass, most effective gun in the world. Engineering, great. The destruction, the destroyer of imperialism and colonization. I mean, everywhere. That's why I want to get it tattooed on me. Over the last two weeks, we've exposed two potentially violent extremists, or shall I say mainstreamists, inside the Bernie Sanders campaign. Last week on Fox News, former White House Press Secretary Sarah Huckabee Sanders pointed out the complete absurdity and hypocrisy by saying this. And if this was the opposite and somebody on Donald Trump's campaign said something half as outrageous as this, you would see it all day, every day uh, by all of the mainstream media. Apparently the campaign is so heedless, they're not even going to issue an official comment to anybody about the behavior as Jesse Waters alluded to. We haven't been able to independently verify the video, but we reached out to the Sanders campaign for comment and haven't heard back. Now, if you work in mainstream media and you were told not to run this story, you could be an insider. You could change things. Contact us at VeritasTips at ProtonMail.com. And you can contact VeritasTips at ProtonMail.com anytime. Because we are now the news. Now, I wanted to talk about the NSA. Um, I wanted you guys to know about um, how this works. So, like I said, the NSA is not an agency. And you're going to say, well, Tori, from Bernie to NSA, I'll tell you why this works. And you'll understand. So... Kind of like the way Project Veritas goes in and exposes them. Google, who we all use and I do too, exposes you. There's something called the public internet and then the Google Cloud, right? Okay. So what happens if Google Cloud is like a Project Veritas? Think. They collect data. Now, Back in 2012, 2013, there was a huge, uh, you know, um, uprise 
from the people in a sense. The Washington Post had even done an article at some point, I think maybe in 2013, like late summer, early fall. And so what happened was um, they found that the NSA is secretly tapping into Google and Yahoo Network to collect information. And this was revealed by leaked documents. Now, Edward Snowden was the one that revealed those documents. It's a project called Muscular Muscle, Getting Muscle. And it was in joint task with the GCHQ, you know, the same intelligence agency that said that President Trump's PP tapes that they supposedly had but didn't um, were real. The same agency whose uh, head stepped down, uh, whose former head of that agency was part of Global Security Group, which if you guys didn't watch the video from Millie, you should, because guess what? After collaboration, after my radio show reporting, after, after, after all this, and you know, I did have it as a header at some point, that website is now down. Oh. How remarkable, right? So I did a little bit of homework. Where's that bank? Where's that private bank? Damn, where is it? And I know all of my listeners probably went on there to Global Security Group, globalgroup.com, and looked. And it's like, where's it going? Oh, remember how I said it led back to the UK to this guy named Moloch, right? Remember how I said that it was a small bank? Well, it all leads back to all these people. I mean, we had head of our intelligence agency, former GCHQ. You know, the people that were tapping into uh, Google and Yahoo user information every single day in between links of the server. So picture it this way. You've got your Bernie dude and you've got your Project Veritas operative and they're talking, right? They're talking to each other and the Project Veritas operative, which is Google, the Google cloud, records what the person is saying. And then, you know, obviously the Project Veritas app operative in this scenario doesn't release the video, but just holds on to it. And you're talking. But as you're sitting across the table and you're having a conversation with this gulag guy, even though you're supposed to be in this protective glass bubble, turns out it's not really glass. It's um the emperor's robe. And suddenly this uh, GFE, which is the Google front end server, which is supposed to protect you, right? It's supposed to protect you. That little channel where you... Send that email and it goes through the secured, uh, you know, socket is just tapped into like, a, like you tap a tree for sap and boom, trickles out all your information. Now, uh, in early 2013, the GCHQ was accused of snagging data from fiber optic cables. Wait a minute. So you mean the cable things we were talking about a couple months ago? You know, it's not something new. It's been happening. Mm. Probably why we have so many plumbers in the White House. But that's the thing. That... So much information was being tapped out, which included metadata and the content of the communication. 
So what was weird is, is that um, the government already had it in place, right? Before, before, this is, this is before, and I'm breaking this down to you. This is before, because we're going to talk about this, because this is going to be coming to the forefront. We got Carlin, we got Atkinson, all that stuff is going to be coming down the pipeline soon. Soon in Tory time is months, right? But I want you guys to get familiar with this because we talked about Global Security Group. I told you about the private companies that are now the ones in charge, you know, because governments are not going to have their trained staff. They're all too posh for that. Or they're just good strategists, right? And they have grunts, which are private companies doing the work for them. So uh, the government is able to, through the FISA Amendments Act, tap information and get information from your phone and emails, Google, Yahoo, etc. And But this data collection we're talking about um, took place and takes place without, okay, and this is a supposed, okay, let's be honest, supposedly without the knowledge of Google and Yahoo. Because, you know, people can actually sue Google and Yahoo if they actually knew. I mean, you know, Who's going to find those DARPA agreements, are you? Now, apparently, uh, Google, when they were confronted in 2013, were really PO'd. They were really upset. And it was the first time that they heard about PRISM and uh, how it can monitor the internet and how, you know, direct data collection from servers was, um, you know, coming out, how they directly did it. And so it was the post back in 2012, was it, or 2013, that had said that it's possible that the data sent uh, through the servers around the world, something that I told you about, is done through dedicated fiber optic cables that may not be encrypted. Okay. So when did we lay fiber optic cables across the Atlantic? Definitely not in 2000. Was Google around then? Mm. So, because no one's supposed to know about those, right? Or like you're not supposed to be able to. So the NSA actually prefers, of course, not to have those fiber optic cables Uh secure because then they can tap it and get that sap, right? Which is your data. So it's pretty incredible if you think about it, that these private companies that sprung up like Google and Yahoo and Lycos and Netscape, all of them, they came out late nineties, early two thousands. were all about how secure your information is. But in the end, it was secure from you or I hacking into somebody else, supposedly, but not the government having like a secret honey, you know, uh, pocket of collecting every single person's data. The upstream, the 72 hour upstream. And then you're going to be like, wait, there is a 72 hour upstream. So they are collecting all of it. Bingo. So this is where we are always misinformed. How are they collecting all the upstream data, upstream meaning everywhere going through any communications, but not collecting it Mm. because they are. 
That's the thing. And those that can evade the upstream because they're manufactured differently or they want to be super private and someone has enormous amount of money and is able to do so, guess what happens? That's where the fiber optic cables are tapped. So, you know, when Hillary Clinton thinks that... She, we can't hear her. It's like, girl, you totally forgot about them cables, didn't you? So that's where we get to. So leaks happen. Private companies cooperate. But there are many, many people that have servers of their own that think they can circumvent such things, but they can't. I mean, it was Keith Alexander back then, the NSA head, right? Who said, oh, uh, you know, uh, when these leaks came out, oh, I didn't know that I have nothing. To, I don't know about this. Like, that's never happened. And it's like, wait a minute. You didn't have a FISA warrant, but you were collecting specific information about Donald Trump and everyone in his orbit. But, um... You know, that's pretty interesting. And here it is that even the media at that point start to flip and say, oh, yeah, well, it can't be true, you know, because then that would mean that the NSA is doing something illegal. And it's like, well, the NSA is a data collector and none of your data is private. Thanks to everything the Bush administration and all the clowns did under the flag of terrorism, the boogeyman they created themselves. And that is what muscular is. It's illegal when they do it within the United States. See, it's legal if they do it outside. So what if they're tapping the communications from the fiber optic cables somewhere outside the U.S., like international waters just past the Bermuda Triangle? Who knows, right? So this is where it's a little bit iffy. Now, uh, there was a surveillance court in 2011 for foreign, um, a foreign intelligence surveillance court uh, in 2011 that the FISA Act didn't meet the requirements of the Fourth Amendment if they were doing something like this. So uh, collections happening around the world is okay in air quotes, but um, it's not legal. But the NSA, guess what? Even though the court says it's not legal to do this, the NSA is not really bound to it because they don't really perform any other function but collect data. See, they don't process the data. They don't analyze the data. They don't write reports on the data. They don't prosecute on the data. So if they're just collecting it, then the law really doesn't apply to them because their function is simply to be the data collector. See where I'm getting at? So, you know, the NSA was really, really upset um, saying that, you know, that the NSA doesn't directly access Google data centers. It also said that the fact that people are saying that we collect vast quantities of people's data is not true. Well, you know, after that interview, we all found out in 2015 that that was super true. 
super true 72-hour upstream data collection section 702 that was altered back in the day that, you know, nobody really, really talked about. And those that did kind of like buried it. Chris Silza, before he went to CNN, he kind of wrote some really good pieces, talked about how Obama put boots on transparency, talked about how they beefed up surveillance, and then suddenly he went to CNN and is all about gulags and stuff. <laughs> I mean, he didn't say gulags, but you know, he'd be totally fine with the gulags because he wouldn't be going to the gulags. He would be conservatives that would be going to the gulags and people that want to be free. So it, what's really weird is that um, the chief legal officer at Google back then said that they're, uh, they acknowledged, listen, after this all came out, first they denied everything. Then they were like, oh, we acknowledge it. So we're going to extend our encryption across the network. Nobody cares because they're not doing it like that. They're not doing it like that. They're literally asking permission or, you know, through a, what is it called? A memorandum of understanding. How many of you want to make a bet? They have tons of those in place with these. Hmm? That's really interesting. And the thing is, is that there were NSA documents that were leaked that AT&T has a highly collaborative relationship with us, with the NSA. So wait a minute. Are you saying that AT&T, the one that Schiff used to wiretap people or, oh, he just got like call records, right? Um, is uh, working with the NSA? You mean they have... A memorandum of understanding. Hmm? Is that correct? That's key. That is the key that no one is looking at. They have a memorandum of understanding and they know exactly what they're doing and they know that they have everything. And why do I say that? They have everything, which means we have everything. So, hmm, what is it about the NSA that doesn't sit right? The fact that they're called, through, that they're one of the 17 agencies, they don't do anything. Let's take a trip back in time where Barack Hussein Obama educated us on how there should be more transparency before he politicized the role of the NSA. Like he legit did that. Here we go. Take a listen. We can and must be more transparent. So I've directed the intelligence community to make public as much information about these programs as possible. We've already declassified unprecedented information about the NSA, but we can go further. So in my direction, the Department of Justice will make public the legal rationale for the government's collection activities under Section 215 of the Patriot Act. First, uh, I will work with Congress to pursue appropriate reforms to Section 215 of the Patriot Act, the program that collects telephone records. You know, I think the latest episode is just one more in a number of uh, emerging differences that we've seen over the last several months around Syria, uh, uh, around uh, human rights issues, where uh, you know, it is probably appropriate for us to take a pause reassess uh, where it is that Russia's going, what our core interests are, uh, and uh, calibrate the relationship so that we're doing things that are good for the United States. 
Huh? I'm confused. You're pledging transparency, but you wrote your first executive order minutes after you swore in was to put a cap on transparency. And you not only did not offer more transparency, but you conveyed that power to private companies with more memorandums of understanding and to the level of national security letters where it's like, "Mm, we're not allowed to see this. You're not allowed to see this. That's the way it is. It's very interesting how things like this play out, you guys. So interesting. On that note, I wish you guys a great evening. We'll talk more about this in this week and next. God bless from all of us at Red State.